so I, I was so excited when, when Neil reached out and said, hey, would you be willing to come? I said, sure. And then when he gave me the topic, I thought, interesting, ancient wisdom for a new year, for a modern day, ancient wisdom for, for us. And um, one of the ways that Scripture most often speaks with wisdom or advice is through question. And there's power in a really good question. And, and I, if you go back to, to Genesis, when Adam and Eve have fallen, do you recall God's question to them? Where are you? Great question. He's not asking where are you physically. He knows. He's really, really intelligent, the creator of the universe. But he's now asking that where are you? What situation have you found yourself in? And so oftentimes it's, it's through questions. God gives advice and asks us as his people to be self-reflective, to be diligent, to, to repent, to reconsider our life. And today we're going to look at another great question that Jesus asks somebody, and I think he asks us too. Before we begin, would you pray with me, and then we'll dig into Scripture. Jesus, thank you for your words, uh, that they speak to all people across all time and place. As we look at this story, as we look at this narrative, as, as we look at the question you posed to this man, might we find our place in your story? Might we see ourselves somewhere in this Scripture, somewhere in this passage, and might your life-giving words and your life-giving promises be offered to us? Jesus, we, we are grateful for your faithfulness. Might we become a people who continue to draw near to you in acts of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be reading out of John chapter 5, where you can follow along uh, behind me or uh, in uh, U version as well. John's Gospel, chapter 5, starts this way. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your mat, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews, the religious leaders, said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Spoiler alert, that's not in Scripture anywhere. <laughs> Nowhere in Scripture is it illegal to take up your mat. It is illegal to work on the Sabbath, but it's not illegal to take up your mat. Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn. Oh, sorry, I skipped. Uh, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. For there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the religious leaders were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, 
My Father is working until now, and I too am working. Or to paraphrase, this is what my dad has been up to since the beginning of time. And I'm just going to be doing the same things my father did. It's a great story. It's a rich story. There's a lot of different lenses and angles we can look at the text from. And in fact, in, in ancient Jewish tradition, you would talk about turning a gem, and this, you would look at it from this way, and then you turn it again, you'd look at it this way, and turn it again, and look at it this way, because there's the beauty and the, the, the majesty within this gem if you, if you turn it. And it's the same with Scripture. We could dwell on, on the man. We could dwell on his worldview of, of the people. Why is it that they so easily give or put their hope into a mysterious pool of water? What is it about these, this, the five-roofed colonnades and um, Beth, Bethsaida or Bethesda that is so appealing? We could dwell on his condition. We could be people of empathy. Could you imagine for 38 years being paralyzed or lame or blind? Where's his family? Where are his friends? Who advocates for this guy? We could dwell on him and have sympathy. Or we, we could dwell on his response to Jesus, I, I, which is great. Do you want to be healed? His answer could have been yes. That sounds great. Or he could have said, no, get away from me, creep. You know, like, who are you? And instead, he comes up with excuses. I can't make it. Every time the water stir, somebody gets in my way. And for those of you that aren't aware, the, the folklore is that every once in a while an angel would stir the waters and the first person in, by the way, it was a steep descent to get to this deep pool, the first person in would be healed. That was the idea. And this place actually housed somewhere between 200 and 300 invalids. So just imagine this massive slope into a pool of water full of people that are, are exhausted and hopeless and isolated, sitting there for days, maybe years on end, just waiting for their chance to touch the water. We could focus on, on the crowd of people there. What would it have been like to watch Jesus walk in, offer you healing, and then leave? Dang. In a room full of isolation and desperation and hopelessness, Jesus heals one. Anyone else uncomfortable with that? What about me? What about her? What about him? We could dwell on the passage right before this one, which is another healing. It's the healing of the official son. And we could compare John's accounts. Why is it that in the first account, the pursuit is of Jesus? The official comes to Jesus. And in this one, Jesus comes to the broken person. What's different about these interactions? What's the same about these interactions? Or we could uh, dwell on Jesus' command. Get up, take your bed, and walk. I could just imagine the amount of courage that needs to be mustered by this guy to get up. And we don't really know what happened. When Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and go, did he feel sort of his muscles begin to, to get stronger or the sinews reconnect? Or, or did he feel as though his body was no longer atrophied and he knew he could stand up, or was this a step of faith? This itinerant rabbi says, get up, get out of here, and he goes, well, okay, and he tries it, and it works. Who knows, right? To be a fly on the wall in Scripture would be just incredible. Or we could dwell on my favorite part. 
We could dwell on the religious leaders. Notice, recall, be mindful that almost every single instance of disagreement or opposition to Jesus, almost every single time in the New Testament comes from religious leaders, the church. We don't like it when God does things that we don't like or when God works in ways that we're uncomfortable with. And notice their response. How dare you be healed on the Sabbath? So petty. How dare you find wholeness and well-being? You are breaking God's law. It's almost comical. But to me, those aren't the most compelling parts of the story. It's Jesus' Jesus's question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be made whole? Do you long for peace or shalom in your life? Is this story really a story about a physical healing? Yeah, but I think it's way bigger than that. It's deeper than that. And if it was really just about the physical healing wouldn't it have been more powerful to, for Jesus to heal everybody? Like, what a witness that would be. 235 invalids walk out of this place and are able to walk back into their homes of worship, maybe reconcile with their families. Um, that would have been seriously powerful. Just the power at Jesus' disposal out of his fingertips to heal everyone, and he could have. And so if this story was really about this one physical healing, Jesus could have done better. So instead, I think it's about the question. It's provocative. It's powerful. It, it gets at the very core of our humanity, who we are, who we're becoming. And I think Jesus poses that same question to you and to me. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And John our gospel writer has sort of set us up for a sucker punch. If you have your Bibles, this isn't going to be on the screen, but flip to John chapter 3. Jesus is starting to pro proclaim his ministry. He's starting to proclaim his purpose. And when he says, look, I've come to save the world. I've come to give my life. I've, I've come not to condemn you, but to serve you. And then he says this. In judgment, he says this. The light has come into the world. This is John, 3, chapter, uh, John chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Light has come into the world, but people have chosen, have preferred darkness over light, over what's available to them. So the question changes a little bit. Do you want to live in darkness rather than live in the light? Do you want to be well or do you want to be relegated to this mat? I can't imagine that mat was very big. If you've got hundreds of people waiting to go into the water, you've got to be packed in. And for how many years, we don't know, this man was content to be relegated to this space, this pain, this limited proximity, trying to find hope, trying to find healing, trying to find wellness, 
and, and, and eventually just said, you know, I can't even make it down there. People just get in my way. I'll just sit here. Do you want to be well or do you want to sit on your mat? He's saying to the religious leaders, do you even want me in your midst? Can you see what I've done? Can you hear what I'm saying to you? Or would you prefer me on a cross? Will you continue to search the scriptures for me and miss out the incarnate Christ in your midst, walking next to you, teaching next to you, healing next to you? Is that really what you prefer, to keep me bound to this? He says to us, and he says to the world, do you want my reign in your life? Or do you want to continue to make poor decisions that lead to poor outcomes? Do you prefer your kingdom over my eternal kingdom? Do you prefer what you've built for yourself versus what I'm creating in you now? Do you trust my intentions for you, Jesus is saying? Or do you want to eat from that fruit again and decide what's good for you? Do you want to be burdened by religion or free to worship me in spirit and in truth? And the reality is, the sad part is that for most of us, we choose darkness. It's comfortable. We get it. I know what disappointment feels like. I know what pain feels like. I know what broken relationships feel like. I know what just surviving feels like. At this point, I'm okay with it. Or we get terrified at the cost it would the toll of the cost to change something, to trust Jesus, to open up our lives, to be transparent, to let light illuminate the darkness within us. Most of us don't actually want healing. We are resigned to our mat, to our sin maybe. Even if it's painful, even if it's dysfunctional, we get used to it. And so the question is terrifying, and it's awesome at the same time. Because when Jesus offers the man on the mat this question, the man's entire life could be turned upside down. To the religious leaders, healing might look different for them. It might be new eyes to see, so they could recognize the very God they claim to worship, Yahweh, walking earth next to them. Where are you stuck? Where are you paralyzed? Where do you have chronic pain and dis-ease with your soul? Are there places in your life where you've surrendered to less than ideal circumstances? Why? Is there habitual sin in your life that you've grown to accept rather than say, all right, Jesus, I actually believe you can do something about this. I just watched a, a movie, uh, Walking Phoenix started in it. It's from 2018. It's called uh, Don't Worry, He Can't Get Far on Foot. It's very difficult to watch. I don't recommend it for everyone. 
um, but it catalogs the life of cartoonist John Callahan. Uh, and uh, the movie shows um, sort of the spiral and destruction of Walking char Walking's character, John Callahan, who at a young age, in a drunken um, stupor, gets into a terrible car accident and becomes a quadriplegic. And um, he then goes on deeper and deeper into alcoholism as a quadriplegic, and his life is essentially over, and he's spiraling out of control. And at one point, he finally decides to start going to a 12-step group. He realizes he's out of control. He needs some help. And in his, one of his first sort of AA meetings or 12-step groups, he's surrounded by a bunch of other folks. And this is his first day, and they know it's his first day. And um, he starts to share about his life. And at one point, they sort of ask him, you know, why do you think you drink? Like, what is it about your life? And by, this is based on a true story. What is, what is it about alcohol? Why do you keep drinking? He goes, I, I think I drink because my mother abandoned me, which is true. He never met his mom. Uh, he was raised in an orphanage. He was never able to track down his mom. And for his entire life, he carried this huge hole, uh, uh, this longing that he wanted to be loved and accepted. And he says, I drink because of that. And then he goes, and look at me. I'm a quadriplegic. I have nothing worth living for. Why wouldn't I drink to numb my pain? And the characters in the movie, it's actually really hard to watch as he shares his emotions and he is, he's sharing his deepest pain. They essentially say this to him, boo-hoo, wham, sorry, and he explodes. John Callahan loses it and goes, you don't understand. You're making fun of my pain. You don't know what it's like to be motherless. You don't know what it's like to be bound to this wheelchair, to have somebody change your diaper. You know, it just lays into them, right? And they go, are you done? And they tell them, you're right where you need to be, John. We all have excuses for why we drink. But poor me, poor me just turns into to pour me three new drinks. They said, you drink because you want to drink, John. It's not your mom's fault. It's not your condition's fault. You're choosing it. And so John faithfully enters a 12-step group, and he becomes sober, and he relapses, and he becomes sober, and he relapses, and he becomes sober, and eventually he experiences salvation from that burden. He finds a higher power. I remember uh, as an undergrad student, I went to Azusa Pacific University, and we were forced to go to chapel three times a week, which, you know, at first you're like, oh, this is awesome, and then you go, this is exhausting. Um, and I remember uh, one evening, I don't remember the scripture passage, I don't remember what the guy said, but I was struggling with my own uh, 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 devastating addiction. And uh, I was a youth group kid. I was a Christian kid raised in the church. My parents had no clue. Nobody in my life had a clue. None of my youth pastors, none of my roommates, nobody. And it was eating me alive. And I remember that night standing there, and, uh, and I, think, I think what our campus pastor said was simply that there's nothing, there's nothing that Jesus doesn't already know And there's nothing, there's no darkness that his light can't expose towards life. And I don't know if Jesus met me in that moment and simply said, I give you the courage that you don't have. But I remember making up my mind that night that I was going to drive home and tell my parents everything.
And I was freaked out. Would they love me? Would they reject me? Would they be embarrassed because of me? Would they feel like they never knew me? So I drive home and I, my parents are like, what are you doing here? And you could tell that they were a little bit nervous. And I just spilled my guts. And I told them what I was going through and what I was battling. And they just hugged me. And they embraced me. And they said, we love you. We had no clue. We're so sorry we didn't know. We would have loved to have walked this journey with you longer. That's not a burden you need to carry by yourself. And they responded to me the same way the prodigal did. Come home. Let's have dinner. You're our son. Let's put our robes on you, a ring on you. It's okay. We can get through this. And I remember driving back to school that night, because I had class in the morning, driving back. And I just remember the burden being lifted off of me that I could be known and not be shamed, that I could be exposed and still be loved, that this wouldn't undo me. And I think the reason so many of us don't actually want to be healed and don't want to be well is we are terrified of what you would think of me and what I might think of you if I really knew who you were. And Jesus says, I already know. And his response to us every single time Every single time is grace, mercy, and compassion. There is no other response. Grace, mercy, and compassion. So I'd like for you and for me to take inventory, to consider the question, to consider our overall health, where in your life do you want to be well? Where in your life do you long to be well? What do you need healing from? Is it greed? Is it lust for power or control? Is it a, a sexual sin? Is it pride? Is it pain? Is it consumerism? Maybe you are are like me, and for years you had self-loathing. And maybe you didn't think you could be lovable. And you just want to be cured of that. That you want to find health and wholeness and that you are a lovable, worthwhile, valued person. Maybe it's from gossip or addiction. Maybe you've got deep anger towards somebody else or feelings of inadequacy. Or maybe it's physical. Maybe you have something physically you would like Jesus to relieve you of. Or maybe you've got some deep convictions and you haven't been able to act on them. Maybe you feel like you've contributed to, to poverty or somebody else's shame. And you're asking God for the courage to become a different kind of person. Maybe it's depression or anxiety, a past experience, a loss hopelessness, loneliness, or maybe it's the fear that you never could actually become well, which is a lie we buy into. I could never change. I could never overcome this. You're right. Jesus can. Maybe it's disappointment in a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend or a church or even God himself, and you just want healing in that place. If you can identify a place in your life that you want healing, wholeness, hope, shalom, or peace, 
what's your first step? For the man, it was literally to stand up, roll up his bed, and take his first step. He had to take that first courageous step. What is your first step towards health? At this church, Wednesday nights, there's a recovery group, and it's open. For those of us that battle addiction, that might be your first step, to know that you could attend that meeting and be safe and be loved and be accepted, and you won't be undone. If that's you, I highly encourage you to talk to Pastor Neil or Jonathan or Cynthia or confide in somebody you trust in this church, any of the elders or the deacons, and just say, how do I get into that group? What is your first step towards Christ? I try to end uh, sermons with confessions or professions of faithfulness, of Jesus' faithfulness to us. Because the fear is Jesus will reject me or my church will reject me or my family will reject me. And here are the promises, here are the confessions that Jesus has said about himself and that scripture says about him that we can therefore move in faithfulness towards him in health. Hear these professions. Jesus says to each of us in this room this morning that he came so that you and I could have life, life abundant, life full of joy, not a life of inadequacy, not a life of loneliness, not a life of constant burdens, but a life abundant. Was Jesus lying? I think not. I think that's available to each of us. Life doesn't have to be dreary or mediocre. It's not perfect, and there will be pain, but Jesus will be with us along the way. Jesus says to each of us in this room this morning, come to me. Every single one of you, that is weary and burdened and tired, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. And that's not projection. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't worry, when you die and you go to heaven, it's going to be awesome. Just be, uh, just, you just got to get through this tedious life first. That is nowhere in the scriptures. Nowhere in Jesus' mouth. He says, come to me now, let me give you rest. Let me take your burdens. Let me give you my light yoke. Let me carry that for you so that you can have a full, abundant life. Jesus says to us, each of us, I'll be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you to the very end of the ages. I'll be with you. Jesus says to each of us, take heart. I have overcome the world. I think often we think, ah, oh, I don't have the power to fight this anymore. And Jesus says, you're right. It's not your power. It's mine. I've overcome the world so you don't have to. The scriptures tell us that there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not heights, depths, angels, demons, principalities, you name it. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And we're told we're new creations, that the old self has passed and there's a new self and that God is making us new again and again and again. And for many of us, we want to cling to that old self because it's safe. 
I know what to expect. And Jesus, Jesus says, no, come into my marvelous light. Let me show you yet a better way to live. Jesus asks us to abide in him, to cling tightly to him. Is there anyone else in the world more trustworthy than Jesus? I don't think so. Might we be a people that aren't scared of letting Jesus illuminate the darkness in our life so that we can find our hope and our peace and our health?